Welcome to the 180 Podcast. You are listening to a teaching of the 180, a new church committed to learning to love Jesus and love like Jesus. Our prayer is that God would use this teaching to help you grow closer to Him and that you would feel moved to join us in person, where you can grow in community with the larger 180 family. Bienvenue à la balado-diffusion de l'Église 180. Vous écoutez un enseignement de l'Église 180, une nouvelle Église qui s'est engagée à apprendre à aimer Jésus et à aimer comme Jésus. Notre prière est que Dieu utilisera cet enseignement afin de vous aider à vous rapprocher de Lui et que cela vous donne envie de vous joindre à nous en personne où vous pourrez vous épanouir au sein de la communauté qu'est la grande famille de l'Église 180. Good morning. So great to be with you on this hot day. Uh, we're now, as I mentioned, just about halfway through the summer now. It's hard to believe. We're already in August. And uh, we're about right, actually right at the halfway mark of our series that we've been going through so far uh, called the Ten Commandments that we've really uh, purposely called Guidelines for Freedom. And uh, as we've been looking at these commandments together and as we've been going through the book of Exodus, we've been reminding you of something really important as a way to understand the commandments. That they're not commandments that were given to, by God to his people as a way to earn his freedom. But instead, God has already set his people free. And now he's given them these important parameters and guidelines and limits that uh, actually help them to live into the fullness now of that freedom. And if you were here or you've turned in over the first few weeks, you know in the first weeks, uh, the first few commandments we looked at focused on our relationship with God, and now these next ones that we've been looking at focus on our relationship with others. And before we look at this commandment, I want to quickly highlight something, uh, kind of another important principle we need to keep in mind as we think about this idea of freedom and how that now connects to relationships with others which is that we not only need to understand freedom, a kind of freedom that accepts the need for us to have limits and guidelines, but we also need an understanding of freedom that's relational, that makes sense of our relationships with other people. See, there's this lie in our culture about how we think about freedom that it's easy for us to believe, which is that if you, have, you can have freedom all on your own terms without ever running into or bumping up against other people that you can have this picture or vision of freedom without ever causing problems for those around you. But the reality is, when I see freedom as the ability to just do whatever I want, all on my terms, at some point, that ends up being at the expense of others, whether I like it or not. And because if I understand freedom just as doing whatever I want, it would be so much easier if I was just all on my own, right? Make these commands, and it's even easier to follow. If I didn't have to kind of think about going on trips with somebody else, I could just travel wherever I wanted. Or if I didn't have to share my mattress with my wife, then I'd really get some good sleep and spread out how I want and really be free. Or maybe for you, you know, if we think about never having to see coworkers again. If you could just work at home, can you imagine? Wink, wink, and just work by yourself, then you'd be free. Our idea of freedom and even of following these commandments feels so much easier if we never have to cross paths with anybody. But the reality is that because we live in a world where we interact with others, we need a vision of God's freedom that includes how we relate to others. And as we continue to look at these commandments, we need to allow them to shape and form in us an understanding of freedom that's not from others, but freedom that's for others. This is something we need to keep in mind as we look at the commandment uh, for this week, the sixth commandment, which is this. We'll have it up on the screen. It's really simple. 
says, you must not murder. Leave that up on the screen a little while so you can let that really sink in. You can memorize that. And then we can just all go home, right? This is great. We got that. We're good. This, this feels like so easy, doesn't it? You must not murder. And I think it's pretty safe probably to say that nobody here has murdered somebody. If that was the case, you wouldn't be here. And so we can just skip this one and go home. And again, I think for most of us, when we read this commandment, it's really easy to skip it over. And maybe it's in some ways even the hardest for us to engage in or to take seriously because it not only seems easy, but it seems like it would never apply to you or to me. Because nobody in their right minds would ever even disagree with this commandment, right? Like today, it's pretty universally accepted between countries and nations and religions and people that it's wrong to murder, Now, we might disagree maybe about some of the nuances of what that means when we say murder versus other kind of of killing or death or just even what it means to kind of the legal ramifications of that or what it means to kind of enforce this commandment in different ways. But nobody would argue that murder is okay, I hope. If that's you, please don't raise your hands. Uh, And because of that, this just feels like an ancient commandment that was made, maybe it was given to a barbaric people that just really doesn't have relevance for us today. But at the same time, not only is murder and killing really still such a big problem in our world today as we know, but our culture for some reason is so fascinated by the idea of murder. In fact, so much of the most kind of popular shows and podcasts that come out more and more are about true crime. They're true crime documentaries that really focus on murder. And we find something about learning about these stories just so fun and entertaining for us. One of the shows that kind of comes to mind for me that uh, my wife got into a few years ago, kind of before the pandemic, is called Making a Murderer. I have the, the picture up on the screen. Now, I, I'll be honest, I've never actually watched this show, and I think I'm told it's a little bit more about, you know, whether somebody's guilty or innocent and kind of figuring that out. But what really strikes me about this show is just the title, just on its own, Making a Murderer. And this question that I think we're all fascinated by, what makes or shapes someone into a murderer? What factors or maybe behavioral patterns contribute to someone deciding eventually to murder another human being? Is it jealousy or greed or revenge or a kind of like a certain kind of anger that's a fit of rage or maybe kind of more of a cold, calculated approach or anger? Maybe there's something just kind of missing psychologically or something off in someone's brain. Is there kind of a recognizable pattern as well of violence that we can see coming that eventually turns someone into a murderer? A few days ago, I was thinking about this in a, in a bit of a different way because I came down uh, the stairs from my bedroom in the morning and our two youngest girls were already down there and they were gathered around a windowsill and I discovered that they had plucked the wings off of a fly. That was terrible. And so um, they were kind of feeding it and you could tell that they felt bad. So I had to talk about why this was wrong and it was not okay. But in my head, I couldn't just help think like, does that mean they're going to end up like that one day? Like I just, you know, it goes through our heads. And the thing is, you know, I think in our culture, we find it fun and entertaining to think about what makes someone a murderer, as long as I don't have to consider how some of those same things can maybe grow and start to take root in me and my own heart. It's entertaining to watch and listen because we think about, you know, and to think about what makes someone else a murderer because it's always about someone else. It's kept at a distance and so it's removed from our own lives. But as we look at this commandment and really take it seriously today, Part of how we have to let this shape something in us is to consider the reality that while I will likely never murder someone, and while you will likely never murder someone, are there things that can take root 
in my heart that shape me in ways that somehow violate this commandment and that violate even God's character, who he is and how he's created us and the world around us? Are there things that take root in me that can cause me to want to, to harm others instead of building them up? Or ways that I can be destructive, maybe, to those around me and even to myself? And just like the other commandments that we've looked at so far, if you think this commandment is just about external actions or or avoiding consequences like going to jail, you've missed the whole point of the commandments. This commandment to not murder goes beyond just what we think is happening on the surface and instead looks at how we're shaped and formed in ways that are deeper, that goes on what's going on in our hearts. And so as we just really dive in this morning, as we explore this commandment to not murder... Just like the other commandments we've looked at so far, God gives this to his people to teach and correct our view of who God is, and that somehow that's also meant to shape a new vision for how we relate to other people. And so at the most basic level, maybe if you're taking notes, you can write this down, that the commandment to not murder teaches and reminds us that the God of the Bible, the God who we worship, is one who made us in his own image. Here's what it says in the creation story. Uh, from Genesis right in the beginning. It says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this commandment to not murder right away just points to the reality that we're all made in, God's, that in, all made in the image of God. Everybody got that? Easy so far? And it teaches us that not only are human beings not created by accident, but instead, that God carefully created each of us as a reflection of who he is, that, that because of that, that makes each of us sacred. One thing that comes to mind as I think about this idea of being made in God's image is when I think about family gatherings with extended family. Uh, we often, you know, we'll try to get together with cousins and aunts and uncles, and I'm at the stage where some of my siblings and cousins are having new babies and younger kids. And uh, maybe this happens to you when you're at family gatherings, but inevitably at some point my Kind of aunts and uncles or grandma will always uh, talk about, look at some of the kids and the babies and talk about the traits that they see in them that they think came from somebody else. It's like, oh, that dimple, that came from their father. Or, oh, their smarts and their wits, that's definitely their mother. Or their, you know, sense of creativity is their aunt. And one thing that I always notice when we do this with our children is we always notice and value certain traits above others, whether it's how athletic they are or how smart or how strong. But when we think about this idea that humans are made in God's image, it's not just about what traits we see as valuable or what we think it's important, but it's about the whole of who they are that makes somebody sacred. And another important way to maybe think about this as we think about how human beings are made in God's image is that human beings are made on God's terms, not on our terms. It's not about what we want to get out of them or what we see important, but to learn to see people on God's terms. That no matter their differences or their flaws or their perceived value to us, that they inherently have, have valuable and are sacred, and that because of that they deserve respect and dignity. Because uh, we're all made in God's image, we're called to protect and to provide safety and to celebrate others, even and especially if they have nothing to offer us. And this is why, you know, so many of the laws and commandments that come after the Ten Commandments are are about caring for the stranger or the foreigner or the widow or somebody who's powerless, who has nothing to offer us. And so at the most basic level, as we think about this commandment, God's command to not murder is violated whenever we treat somebody as not created in God's image. 
And in the book of Exodus, and we've challenged you to kind of go through this with us, we've been reading, reading it with us so far, uh, for the people of Israel, there's one person right away who comes to mind who they know has violated this principle that everyone's made in God's image, and they've violated it in a way that's really personal to them, and that person is Pharaoh. Pharaoh, as the ruler of Egypt, had so much power and control that he was even seen as a god to his people. And he was used to doing everything and seeing everybody on his terms that he had to the point where he had no problem just ruthlessly enslaving God's people for over 400 years. And when they grew too big or didn't fit his vision of what he wanted for them for, or wanted them to be, they became disposable to him. In fact, Pharaoh violates God's image to such an extreme that in order to kind of kill off some of the people of Israel, just for no other reason really than population control, he decides he's even going to use their midwives as a way to do it. Here's what he does. It says, you can put it up on the screen, then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Puah. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. Can you believe that? So not only is Pharaoh so bent and so shaped by getting his own way that he's willing to murder all the male children, all the babies of, of the people of Israel, but he even uses their own midwives as a way to do it. Midwives, women whose profession is to celebrate and to help and give, give new birth, to celebrate that, that kind of miraculous moment. Instead, he's using them as tools for murder. And while Pharaoh is maybe the most kind of extreme example we have of somebody whose heart is shaped and bent in this way, he's symbolic for us or somebody who views and relates to others only on his terms and not on God's terms. And we can violate God's image in the exact same way. If you're taking notes, you can write this down, that while we violate this command whenever we treat and view others as, as treat them as people, treat them on our terms and stop seeing them on God's terms. Again, we violate this whenever we view and treat others on our terms and we stop seeing them on God's terms. Whenever we see and treat them as people who should be made and bent according to our image or our vision or our purpose, instead of seeing them as God's image and relating to them on God's terms, whenever we do this, we violate this command because we're treating them as less than human. Here at the 180, we try to kind of regularly run a course called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Maybe you've heard of it. We most recently ran it in the spring-summer. And part of this uh, course refers to a theologian named Martin Bruber who wrote a book. And in the book, he talks about two different ways that we can see our relationships with other people. One that's healthy and one that's unhealthy. And uh, I have an image on the screen that kind of gives you a picture of this. The first is to see... Uh, our relationship with others as what he calls I-thou relationships. So in this kind of relationship, we recognize and treat others as those and ourselves as those who are made in God's image, which means that we treat them with dignity and respect and we honor their differences and the things that make them unique to us. But the second kind of really unhealthy way that we often see our relationships is what he calls I-it relationships. In this kind of relationship, we treat others more as tools than as human beings. We see them little more than as things that we can be used to our advantage or only really as a means to an end. And when we treat people this way and we relate to them on our terms instead of God's terms, it can quickly become toxic and destructive and dehumanizing. As you think about that, do you ever find yourself treating someone else more as an I-it than an I-thou? 
So much of our world shapes us into these kinds of people that treat others in this way. Our world is so shaped as an example by consumerism and efficiency that we treat other things as easily disposable whenever they don't work for us or they don't fit our purposes or what we're looking for. And because of this, when we're so shaped by this, over time, we begin to even treat other people in this way. We pick and choose our relationships on our terms, whether they fit with our vision or what we want or not. Or as soon as they don't fit, we want to get rid of them. We treat employees as commodities who make us money without caring about their well-being or their health. Or we pretend maybe to be nice to our neighbors only so they'll return a favor for us. Or when we walk into a store or call someone on customer service, I know I'm guilty of this one, we treat people on the other side of the counter or on the other side of the phone as dirt. Because when we use this excuse all the time, the customer is always what? Right. There are so many just subtle ways that we can violate God's command not to be shaped by murder. When we, whenever we view relationships and see others on our terms instead of God's terms, we see, and when we see them as little more than tools and what we can get out of them, it becomes dehumanizing and destructive. And God knows that the people of Israel have been shaped so long by this culture, living under Pharaoh's rule. And, and living in a world of oppression and dehumanization in, in Egypt, that they will need to now keep this command front and center as a way of being reminded that they now need to model a different way of living. God's telling them, now that you've been set free from a world where you were treated as slaves, you will now model something different. You will treat others and love others on my terms with love and respect and dignity. And you will see them as people who are made in God's image. So we, as we look at this commandment and as we've, we've been going through the book of Exodus, not only do the uh, people um, immediately think of this example of Pharaoh as a kind of warning to them and to us, but everyone in the Bible and the people of Israel also have an example of someone else who would come to mind right away as a warning of what this looks like to violate this command. Somebody that would probably hit a little closer to home for them, be a little further back in this, their history, And he's an example of someone who doesn't just violate from this commandment from a place of power. Or he doesn't just violate it just towards anyone, but he violates it towards his own brother. And that person's name is Cain. Probably the most famous example we have of of murder in the Bible is the story of two brothers, maybe you've heard of them, named Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are symbolic of just how easily sin and murder can take root in someone's heart and cause them to turn on someone else when things don't work out. On our terms. And as we read about them, right at the beginning of the book of Genesis, that comes kind of right after the story of creation and right after the fall when sin has entered the world. And there's this moment where Cain and Abel, these two brothers, they're both kind of deciding or they're both presenting these sacrifices, these gifts to God. And uh, Cain, by profession, is a farmer, and so he brings some of his crops. And Abel is a shepherd, and so he decides to bring God one of his sheep. And what happens next in the story, none of us expect to happen, which is that God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but he does not accept Cain's. Here's what it says. It says, when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry. Now, we, when we look at that, we probably have a lot of questions that feels puzzling for us, right? 
And while, you know, many biblical scholars over the years have different theories, maybe as to why God accepted Abel's gift but didn't accept Cain, we have different theories. Maybe it's because, you know, he ta- he, they kind of already should have had a sense of what was an acceptable sacrifice or Abel offered something better than Cain. But we don't really know for sure, and the text doesn't really tell us. But what we do know that I want to focus on today is that for Cain, because things don't go according to plan for him, how he expects them to go, right away that makes him really angry. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate to that pretty easily. When something doesn't work out how I planned or on my terms or what my expectations were, I can get pretty frustrated pretty quickly. In fact, I'm so easily annoyed even just when my neighbor's kids are playing out in the backyard and I'm trying to do work at home. Like, that bothers me. And because things don't work out on Cain's for Cain on his terms, instead of maybe taking a, a moment to address some of his confusion or his frustration in a more healthy way, he gets angry in a way that that anger builds and, dis- and develops into a kind of destructive anger and jealousy towards his brother Abel. God quickly recognizes that Cain is upset and that his anger is quickly growing out of control, and so he addresses this with him. Here's what he says. He says, Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. What God is warning Cain is that if he can't get past needing to do things on his terms and to accept God's terms, that if he can't learn to kind of surrender control, then sin will quickly begin to control him. He will quickly become destructive, not only towards others, but also to himself. But because Cain isn't able to let go and surrender, he allows it to take root in a way that he then turns on his own brother. He no longer sees or accepts, God, accepts Abel on God's terms. And so he decides to deal with him on his terms. He quickly moves from seeing Abel as his brother, who he's just worshipped beside, to seeing him as someone who, who has made him look bad and is now a threat to his own way, or his own happiness. And so instead of listening to God, Cain takes Abel out into the field, and he kills him. Excuse me, he kills him. Cain is symbolic of how easily each of us can turn on others when things don't happen on our terms. He's an example of how anger and jealousy and destructive thoughts and behavior towards others can quickly creep into our hearts and build and build when things don't go the way we want or expect. And this is so much easy for us when our expectations aren't meant or things don't go according to plan to begin to take that out on other people. And this happens all the time in so many different ways. It happens on social media, how quickly we can just block, delete somebody or write a nasty comment on their wall or wherever in the comment section. During COVID is another example of how it exposed how quickly we can just become toxic and destructive towards others when things don't happen on our terms or the way that we expect and it feels out of our control. And we even do this in churches with other people or with other denominations when their beliefs or their practices or their preferences don't fit with ours. How quickly we can then use language that's destructive or toxic or we talk about them in a negative way behind their backs. And just like Cain, it even happens with those that we're closest to. You can get upset with your kids because they don't behave the way that you want them to. 
or because their personality maybe is different than what you hoped it would be, or the gifts that they have are not the gifts that you expected them to be. Or you're upset and and bitter towards your husband or your wife because they don't fit the mold or the expectations that you had for them when you were planning to get married. And you can carry that anger and that bitterness in ways that you start to wish that you were with somebody else. Or you start to think about ways that you could get rid of them, even if it just stays in your heart. And instead of celebrating them or appreciating them for the unique ways and the things that God has created in them, you instead see them as a threat to your own happiness and your own freedom and well-being. And I'll admit, I have, moment, I have to confess, I have moments like this with my own family, with my own wife and kids. And in fact, most recently, I noticed kind of this pattern developing when I went on vacation with my family about a month ago. We took a trip down to the States, and uh, almost right away, things didn't go according to plan. We were driving down, we got a flat tire. Then when we got there, it sounds petty, but the weather wasn't what we hoped it would be. And just quickly, it felt like nothing was working out of my idea of what vacation should be. Nothing was happening on my terms, and suddenly people weren't behaving how they wanted them, I wanted them to, and I became just angry and moody and bitter, and I started to wish that I was even on vacation with somebody else instead of just celebrating that I was on vacation with my family. And this was a good time to just rest and be together. I quickly became just moody and destructive. Maybe you have moments where you do this. You notice that you do this as well. And because Cain lets his destructive behavior build, and he stops seeing as Abel as someone who's made in God's image, he stops seeing seeing him as someone he's also meant to protect. After Cain kills Abel in the field, God speaks to him again, and he asks him a question. This is what he says. It says, Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, Where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? Maybe if you have a Bible open, it's the version that says, Am I my brother's keeper? That famous phrase that we know. And the answer to Cain's question is, Of course, yes. He's your own brother. Of course you're meant to to be safe and to protect him instead of seeing him as a threat to you. And one of the biggest signs for us that temptation to violate this commandment has begun to grip our hearts towards someone else is when you no longer see them as someone that you're meant to protect. Let me ask you this question. Are you a safe place for others? Are you safe, not only just to your immediate family, but to your friends or to your coworkers or to strangers? Are you safe not just from kind of obvious harm, but from any toxic or destructive behavior? Are you the kind of person maybe who's easy and safe to spend time with and to confide in because people know you have their best interests at heart? Or are you the type of person more that people have to kind of walk around eggshells on, tiptoe around, because they don't know what's going to set you off next? Uh, In the summertime, just like any kind of good basic dad, I like to use my barbecue a lot. I like to cook at home. And if you use a barbecue, you kind of know that one thing that's really important when you start a barbecue is that when you turn the propane tank open, the valve open, and you try to start the burner, if it doesn't start right away, you need to shut off the propane and leave it for a bit. And the reason why is if you don't, and that propane tank is on and you're still trying to light the burner, if you wait too long, the propane has, has kind of leaked and built to the point where if you turn it on, the flame can be so big it blows up in your face. And uh, anyone, kind of what makes this so dangerous and important for us to pay attention to is because propane is unseen. 
It's invisible. And so we need to kind of, on an extra level, kind of pay attention and be careful about how it's building in ways that we can forget that's happening below the surface. And as I was kind of just barbecuing this week, I kind of thought about this, that this is so much like kind of how murder and destruction can grip our own hearts. It's not always obvious or noticeable at first, but that even while it's invisible, it's still dangerous. And it will keep building until it's destructive not only to others, but even to yourself. Uh, we, as we kind of begin to wrap up in a few minutes this morning, I want to end by looking at Jesus' words in Matthew, where he brings up this commandment not to murder, and he talks about kind of these subtle and sneaky and maybe unseen ways that murder can begin to take root in our hearts. This is what he says. It's found in, in Matthew, and uh, here's what it says. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, even if you are angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. Even if you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And even if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Yikes. Some nice, friendly words from Jesus to end on this morning, right? And you know, I, I read those words and I can't help but think, like, this sounds too hard. It's like he's making this impossible for us. Like, can I really become someone who never curses someone? Have you been down the 15 lately or on carry? Or do you know how many idiots are on social media? Like, Jesus, don't you ever go on Facebook or Instagram? Come on, this is too hard. But Jesus doesn't want to let us off the hook easily because he knows how easily destructive thoughts and behavior can take root in us, especially when we look at this commandment only on our terms and not on God's terms. And as a wise friend kind of recently shared with me, we all want to be godly, and we all want to be godly on our terms, but Jesus calls us to be godly on God's terms. Jesus knows that in order for us to each live into and experience the fullness of the freedom that God has for us, we need to take this teaching seriously, and we need to stop ignoring the things that build below the surface, to learn to surrender to God, to let Him to restore the areas where maybe murder and destruction have gripped our hearts. It's so easy on our terms to only care about following the rules or avoiding bad circumstances instead of paying attention to the things that are below the surface to paying attention to the ways that we can cause destruction to others with our words or to even de just develop bitter and angry thoughts towards someone. That it's not enough for people even for you to be safe to people on the outside, but they need to be safe even in your heart. Jesus warns us of a kind of judgment here as well that we experience when we let murder grip our hearts. Because when we let destructiveness and, and grow and build in us, we become destructive not just to other, one person, not just to kind of other people, but we become destructive even to ourselves. It builds and builds to the kind of anger and hate and jealousy that won't just destroy other people, but it will even destroy you from the inside out. But when we learn to surrender and see people and love others on God's terms, it's life-giving, not only for them, but for us. But when we relate to others only on our terms, it's destructive. As Seb kind of just plays quietly for us in the back, and we just consider this and reflect on this this morning. 
what's something that maybe you need to surrender to God? That's maybe has begun to cause destruction in your life instead of giving life. What's something that you need to ask him to restore in you? And one of the biggest kind of signs as we wrap up, one of the biggest signs that God has set you free to see others on his terms and to see them as people made in God's image is that you're free to celebrate others. That instead of wishing them harm or hoping that they'll fail or feeling bitterness and resentment towards them, you're able to celebrate them with joy and you're able to see them as your brothers and sisters. You're able to celebrate their differences and the things that make them unique and to love them, not based on your terms or what you want or your need for control, but based on God's terms. You're able to celebrate their their achievements and their unique gifts and things that make them different, even if it's different than what you hoped for. Can you just imagine how our relationships, relationships with our kids or our spouses or parents or friends or coworkers or neighbors, imagine how different these would look, how they would be transformed if we really took this seriously. Instead of demanding our terms, we just celebrated them on God's terms and how God created them. Imagine if Cain had done that for Abel. In our world, so many people are just longing for people who are shaped by joy and who celebrate others. People who are safe, who, who look to their interests and want to protect them. In a world that's so shaped by destruction and anger and toxic behavior. So just as we close and you think about that, I just want to invite you, if you're comfortable, just to close your eyes. Just as you do that, I want you to consider again, what do you need to surrender to Jesus as you think about this commandment? Is there someone maybe who comes to mind in your life who you struggle to celebrate? Is there a relationship where where anger and bitterness have gripped your heart? Maybe it's a relationship where that doesn't look maybe obvious on the outside based on your actions, but inside you know it's becoming destructive. Maybe you just, this morning, you're just wrestling with this general feeling of anger that you don't know where it's coming from. Maybe from some kind of disappointment or just feeling like something's out of your control that you know you just can't fix on your own. Just as you close your eyes, I want you to just imagine Jesus in front of you. Knowing the thing that you're wrestling with and just asking him to restore it. Just surrendering that to him. Asking him to restore your vision for what it means that people are made in his image, that the person you're thinking of is made in his image. Would you just surrender that thing that's just below the surface? I invite you now just to, to stand. You can keep your eyes closed if you want. Just stand and we'll pray together. Father, would you forgive us 
for just the many ways we violate this commandment and violate the truth that you are a God who's made people in your image. Forgive us for the times that we look at others and demand and treat others on our terms instead of on your terms. For the ways that we just cling to control and how that can cause destruction to those around us. So God, would you help us to surrender those things knowing and trusting that you set us free. That you alone can restore those things in us. That you can restore a vision for what it means to celebrate others. To be people who are safe for others. Would you restore that in us? And as we go from here, would you help us to be those who are filled with your joy? Not just for what you're doing in our lives, but for what you're doing in the lives of those around us. Would we be the first as your church, to celebrate that in our families, in our relationships, in our communities. So we pray that you would just continue to do those things in us as we learn to surrender. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, everyone. So good to be with you this morning. If you want to stick around, we have a couple of people in our prayer space today who would just love to take the time to pray with you. Don't feel like you have to rush off. Uh, but for everyone else, just have a great week. See you.